On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and Dr. David Levy is my guest. He joins us via the wonders of Zoom from the States. He is the author of the book, Grey Matter, A Neurosurgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer. David, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's good to be here, Clayton. Thank you. Um, David, I, I know that you know there's a whole host of people, and myself included, who over these last few years has been just grabbing any small parts of neuroscience and understanding and how does my brain work, you know, and I think probably half of us on the internet think that we know something about this, but you've actually studied it. So I'm fascinated to be talking to you today about uh, what neuroscience is, and then especially as we mix it with the power of prayer. I'm not quite sure if you know, David, but um, a few months ago, our prime minister uh, had a lot of coverage about the fact that he was praying for people as he was shaking hands with them as we go through it. I thought of his story when we, we think of yours. Yes, uh, I, I, prayer is controversial, and that's part of the, the, the meaning of the book. Yeah. Gray matter is, gray matter is, a, is a, a gray matter. Yeah, yeah. We're going to dig into that a bit more as we go forward. Let's start with uh, your first journey into neuroscience. Was this something that even in high school you were thinking, look, I, I want to sort of get into this area? Is it something that came a bit later in life? When did this sort of area become a, a strong area for you? Well, I enjoyed working on cars, actually. I was an auto mechanic around, the, around our house, and I worked at a gas station, a filling station. I enjoyed auto mechanics and the, the guy who was working with me at the gas station wanted to go to medical school. Uh, he actually never got in, but the idea stuck in my mind. And I said, you know, if I could fix cars, I bet I could fix people. And sure enough, uh, I was able to, uh, to get into medical school and neurosurgery has been a wonderful career. Yeah. Um, it, it does seem like one of those ones that you know, only the top of the top of the top of the top get to neurosurgery. Is that correct? I mean, you know, we're not trying to ask you to brag too much about yourself, but is that fair to say? It's fair. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly competitive specialty. It's a difficult, difficult pathway. Uh, in addition to, to doing neurosurgery, I did a fellowship in endovascular neurosurgery, endo inside vascular, the vessel. So surgery on the inside of the vessels, we enter through the femoral artery in the leg and thread the tube all the way up into the brain and operate through that and repair typically brain aneurysms and other vascular problems in the brain. And without opening up the skull and the person can go home the next day. It's really a fascinating, fascinating career. It's a, essentially like a big video game, big high stakes video game. Every uh, adolescent boy's dream is to do a, uh, a video game of that proportions. Yeah. Do you have that sort of, you know, music in the background when you're going as well, like do, 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 just as you're doing it, just in case? No, we, we sort of keep it quiet. Some people <laughs> at the end, maybe when we're just wrapping up, we may put on some music, but it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, any little move can, uh, can be a very serious problem, stroke or, or death. It's a, it's a serious business. Yeah, I, I would imagine that, that it is something that is so intense. Is that something that um, drains people who work in this field? Is this something that you can actually do for decades and decades and decades? Or is actually the stress of that, you know, every moment, every single time you're doing it, there, there's, it's literally a life and death situation. Whereas, you know, most of us are, you know, we, we're fixing a road or we're sitting at a desk and, you know, well, if we make a muck up, it's not the biggest 
deal in the world. Is that something that does actually limit the life of a neurosurgeon? Uh, it depends. It depends on your personality. Uh, I actually stopped doing neurosurgery in 2017. I married actually for the first time in 2016. Uh, which I'd waited a long time and my career took up most of my busy time, but I married a wonderful woman, Naomi, and decided, you know, being on call and running in at midnight for those emergencies was not so good for the marriage and I wanted to give it every chance. And so I, I stopped doing the high-risk neurosurgery and transitioned to more speaking, writing, uh, really, you know, talking about things that were, I felt, important. I could only do one-on-one with a person in the surgery, but now I'm able to reach uh, larger audiences. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that is also intersecting with all of this uh, science and the focus on the brain is actually your faith as well. So maybe we go back to where uh, faith life for you, you have a trust in Jesus and who he is as a, a, you know, a personal relationship for you, but also I suppose that broader context of who he represents as God. Um, where did that start for you in your life? You know, I think with anyone's faith journey, you really have to start with the parents. My, my father was born in a Jewish family in Europe just around or just before World War II. He fled when the Nazis came through and people that didn't leave his town, you know, went to the death camps. So it was a, uh, he was a refugee then, came to the U.S., he became a follower of Jesus. He began reading the, the, the scriptures, a Messianic Jew. And he married my mother, wasn't, she wasn't Jewish. I grew up going to church, didn't really like church, was not, uh, wasn't fun for me. Uh, so I, as soon as I could stop going, really, I, I, I stopped. Went on to medical school. You know, things of God and Jesus, not very popular in medical schools. It's as you mentioned, it's the elite, it's the intelligentsia, it's, uh, you know, we, we don't, it's the beautiful people, it's the, the cream of, of the crop. You, you don't think you need a crutch or something. It, it, somehow people think of people of faith as maybe simple or not as gifted as the others. So I didn't really want to be a follower of Jesus in medical school, honestly. It wasn't, it wasn't popular. And what we find about the brain is that you actually choose what you want to believe, and then your brain sort of makes it true for you. Uh, Jesus was not popular with my social circle, so I didn't really, your brain sort of pulls in the information it wants and rejects the information it doesn't want. But I got out into practice uh, and was doing well, was climbing the academic ladder, was looking at you know, writing, was publishing, was speaking nationally. And I had some issues in my personal life. First of all, I had a, I had a difficult relationship with my dad. I, I had an, uh, an operation, a patient was on the table that had a large aneurysm. I was doing the repair. It was a very complex repair. It was 11 hours of surgery, a tremendous wow. undertaking. Mm. Technically the surgery went well, but the woman ended up dying of a, of a blood clot, something that was not a technical issue. I was devastated. It was sort of the first time I was face-to-face -face in my career with you know, failure, something I had really wanted to happen 
and, and technically my skills were, were enough, but I couldn't be responsible I, or I couldn't, I couldn't heal. I, I realized I had sort of hit the, the limits of what I could do as a surgeon. Well, with that blow, I sort of was reeling, but then I had this second issue in my personal life. There was a, there was a woman I liked. Well, I wouldn't have told her that I liked her because that was, well, let me back up. Everything I knew about relationships, I learned uh, from James Bond, watching James Bond movies <laughs> with, my, with my father and my two brothers. Yeah. So I had a high-tech, dangerous job like James Bond, and this thing he used to do about treating women poorly and then having them love him all the more, I couldn't get that to work for me. <laughs> I was dismissive. I was arrogant, but somehow that just made them leave and not, uh, not love me more. So with this woman who started dating another doctor, I, I couldn't understand that, but I became angry. And when surgeons become angry, well, we typically blame other people. It's the nurse's fault, it's the anesthesia fault, it's someone else's fault, it couldn't be my fault. Well, I began blaming my father. It was his fault. He didn't, you know, we just watched James Bond together. And he had told me that if I was the best, I would be happy. Arguably, I was the best, at least in my city, in my region, but I wasn't happy. I, I thought that doing high-risk neurosurgery would fulfill me forever. It would be you know, absolutely satisfying, but I quickly found that that wasn't the case and that I needed more. Well, I called my mother at some point during that season and I was complaining about my father saying, look, you know, he, all the mistakes he'd made. And I remember that mom, she said something I'll never forget. She said, David, you need to forgive your father because you have hurt people and you need to be forgiven. Well, that wasn't why I called. I was <laughs> not looking for her. Uh, a correction, I was looking for some sympathy. But after I hung up the phone that night, I, I just thought to myself, wow, you know, shouldn't he be apologizing to me? What is this forgiveness? What is that about? And I thought, okay, I will forgive him. And it started the process of forgiveness. I won't say it was all over and, you know, oh yeah, doesn't matter anymore. But I started the process that night. And I also said, God, I, I need to be forgiven. My mother's right. I need to be forgiven. I have hurt people. This, all this ambition and social climbing has not been without its casualties. And Clayton, that really unhooked, I would say, this locomotive drive of ambition for me. I started becoming more cognizant, more aware of the spiritual realm. And instead of just trying to be, I'd say, famous or with you know, everyone knowing my name, I started caring more about people. Actually, Jesus became you know, so much more interesting. I had always thought that Jesus was just a, well, he's a, he was a really nice guy. He was so very, very nice. He was nice to animals and lepers and people like that, but he didn't have anything to say to a neurosurgeon, someone who's really a go-getter. He was just, you know, just too nice. And I realized as I began looking at the scriptures, how courageous this man was, how he wasn't afraid of anybody. 
And I began to take in, you know, my brain was now open to the idea that I needed some help with life. And this man, who I came to believe was God, actually had a lot to say about life and he could help me with mine. And so that forgiveness bit just started me on this journey of actually looking, what is, what is life about? What, what can I do as a neurosurgeon, not just to extend people's lives, is it possible that I could actually make their life better if I talk to them about their relationships? I talk to them about, what, what is your concept of God? Do you have people you need to forgive? Is it possible you can't forgive yourself for something? All of those issues I find uh, are so central to life and to health. And so the intersection of that is really uh, began to take off from that point. Yeah. So we're going to explore what actually happened as David started doing that with his patients, as he started chatting to them, as he started offering to pray for them. What actually occurred? That's on the way next with Dr. David Levy. He's the author of the book, Gray Matter, A Neurosurgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer. We'll be back in just a moment here on 89.9 The Light. In Conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light. You're in conversation with Clayton. And my guest is Dr. David Levy. He's the author of the book, Gray Matter, A Neurosurgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer. Uh, and it's just uh, been remarkable hearing your stories already, David. And so I'm very much looking forward to this part of our chat. Um, this is where you had a, a revelation, as we heard a couple of moments ago, saying, okay, well, um, Jesus is real. He's actually courageous. He has something to say to me as a neurosurgeon. And I think actually there could be more benefit for my patients. You know, as a doctor, you're, you're wanting to heal them. Um, and so you started perhaps even suggesting, how do I pray for somebody? Uh, could you take us through that decision of actually offering that prayer? And then the first time you actually prayed for somebody? Sure. Well, it actually started, you know, the thought had been in my mind for a bit because I was pursuing Jesus. I was getting to, and I was reading the scriptures. I was uh, at that point. Um, yeah. Just very interested in how Jesus could, affect or impact my medical practice. But honestly, and I'm in my training, I had never seen it. And for those of you that know the medical system, it's, it's pretty separate. It, the, the, we, we definitely try to, we call a chaplain if somebody needs some spiritual, but we try to keep everything very scientific, very technical. But I had to have a filling replaced. And I went to my dentist, who uh, was a man of faith. And so as dentists do, they pull out that, what, that three inch needle they're gonna put in your mouth, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I believe uh, where injections are concerned, it is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> I don't mind giving her an injection, but I don't like to receive them. Yeah. Well, I tensed up, I tensed up a bit and he could, he could sense that. Well, he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said a short prayer. He said, I don't know exactly, but it's something like, God, thank you for David, guide my hands. I don't remember what he said, but I remember the impact of that prayer was to give me a sense of peace. Now the injection still hurt a bit, but we know that anxiety makes everything worse, especially pain. So by settling my anxiety with his prayer, he actually did me a tremendous service, a great favor. And as I went home that day, I thought this inner voice, I think it was God speaking to me now, said, you know, David, you should pray for your patients. 
And I said, no, 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 that is a gift only dentists have. <laughs> they are a, have a special gift of prayer because their job is not that complicated. I have some really complicated surgery. I don't know if it's worth risking prayer for, for I mean, what if the surgery goes bad? I mean, what will people think? Will they think I'm trying to push my faith on them? Uh, you know, the worst possible scenario for most neurosurgeons is, well, what if they think I don't know what I'm doing? That's why I'm praying. Mm. You know, that I didn't get a good night's sleep last night, but well, whatever, let's just pray about it. I think, I think it'll go okay. All of these things I was thinking, and then I heard this inner voice again saying, if you're worried about being misunderstood, I can promise you at some point you probably will be because Jesus was misunderstood, but you still need to do the right thing. Mm. Wow. I had experienced the right thing the dentist had done for me. And now you can't argue with that experience. There was something there. There was something that it was imparted to me. It was a blessing that was imparted to me because someone cared enough to pray. So I said, okay, I will ask a patient to pray. So that next surgery day, I came uh, as usual into the preoperative area wearing my long white coat. Uh, but this time, usually it's my most confident day, but I had a knot in my stomach. You know, the, you know, I, I didn't imagine how busy was the operative area, the preoperative area, people coming and going. And so I went to see my patient, Mrs. Jones. She was waiting for her aneurysm surgery. Her two daughters were with her. So I went in, was explaining the surgery, wondering, okay, when am I going to pray? But there was a nurse there, and there was no way I was going to pray in front of a nurse. And who, know, who knew how busy they are, how much work they actually do until that day. I didn't appreciate how busy <laughs> the nurses were. <laughs> Putting IVs, charting. So I was trying to outlast her, waiting for her to leave. Well, she had too much to do. I decided, you know, I have to pray for somebody else. And so I turned around and I left. But I waited for a bit. Finally, the nurse left. But then here came the anesthesia team. So I, I couldn't go in, you know, I didn't want anyone. It was a top secret mission. Finally, they left and I hurried in and sort of blurted out, would you like a prayer? Now I had, I had seen on her uh, printout that she listed Protestant as her faith. So I knew she'd at least heard of prayer. But she looked at me like, you know, what, what's going on here? And she looked at her daughters and then said, uh, okay. And so I put my hand on her shoulder, which not a lot of neurosurgeons are very touchy-feely, but that's what the dentist did to me. So I put my hand on the shoulder and I said a short prayer. And I do recommend people keep their prayers short if you're going to pray for people in these situations where people aren't expecting it. God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain and you can help me to fix them. I ask you for wisdom and skill and success in this surgery. In Jesus' name, amen. I open my eyes and Mrs. Jones has tears flowing down her face. Two daughters, same thing. And wow, the same thing happened to them that happened to me in the dentist chair. Somehow I imparted something by inviting God into this situation. Well, 
Now I had a situation. I got three crying women in my pre-op <laughs> area. So I did what I did what neurosurgeons do. I I um I patted her on the hand, and then I turned around, and left it for the nurses to deal with. <laughs> sure enough, she came in handing out her Kleenexes, and uh, out I went. And Clayton, I had more joy at that surgery than I have had at any previous surgery. It was as if this weight had come off of me. And I believe it is because I was honest. I was authentic. People come to the neurosurgeon thinking you're a god. Well, the truth is I'm not. But the authenticity to say, but I'm happy to talk to God with you and for you if you'd like, that authenticity freed me to have a lot more joy at surgery. Surgery went well, I came back, you know, her daughters were so happy and they said, oh, you know, thank you for praying for my mother. It gave her such peace. You know, can we give you a hug? And I said, okay, uh, you know, it was as, as if God were speaking to me saying, David, you're on the right track, keep it up. And that was my beginning. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm guessing that not every single time you've gone and asked somebody, would you like to pray for them? It's been um, as well received. Is that fair to say as well? That's fair to say. That is yeah. fair to say. And what, what happens in those situations then? Is there, does that bring doubt in your mind of, oh, should I be doing this? Uh, does it, you know, those worries that you had of people thinking, oh boy, maybe I'm not actually, they don't have, you know, does it lower their trust in me? just as we're about to go in, it, have those things come up? You know, typically not. Occasionally they do, but if you ask in such a way that, first of all, I believe that prayer for people that want it is a real blessing. I would even compare it to giving someone a sleeping pill in the hospital. It's on the chart if you want it, you don't have to have it if you don't want it or need it, or you're happy to do without. It, it, it's an option. I think that's where we get into trouble is if we start pushing our faith or saying you have to have a prayer because I need the prayer. You know, I can pray on my own. I think mm -hmm. that's, um, you know, fine. But if someone would be blessed by a prayer, I don't want to miss that opportunity because it is such a blessing to the people that want it. Yeah. I, and many of the people, even atheists, would, would say, you know, hey, it can't hurt. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, it. There is something about someone who cares enough even to use their faith to say, I will talk to the God I believe in for you. Yeah. I care that much about you. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening for the, the nurses and the anesthetists and those around? Because I'm guessing that you couldn't always, every single one from there on, wait until they weren't <laughs> there. Uh, what, what happened with, with those who were your colleagues? You know, eventually there were a number of nurses who knew I was praying and they would come in and they, they would actually ask if they could be part of it mm. because many nurses do have faith and they, they, that is the highest form of honor that you can give a patient and to, to love them enough to take your time. And, you know, often we would hold hands and form a little circle. And as I mentioned, the prayers were very short, um, very powerful, but very meaningful to stop and pause for a moment. As patient's going to surgery, we all want success for him or for her, whatever they believe. We want this to be successful. And we are a team uh, united for that. 
it's a very powerful moment. Yeah. And what about fellow neurosurgeons? I'm guessing this got around, that this is what was, was happening. What was their response? You know, some people were, I would say, like Nicodemus in the Bible. You know, they would come to me and say, wow, we've heard what you're doing. Great job. Uh, they'd kind of sneak around about it. Uh, and some, um, certainly after the book came out, many people have written me saying, I have started praying with my patients. I've started asking them. Uh, and not only physicians, but nurses, physical therapists, um, you know, I think anyone who, who is in a situation where people are trusting you to do a job, but you're not in full control. Uh, I mean, in fact, I, I, when a plumber comes to my house, I ask if I can pray with him. <laughs> there are things that people say, well, I'm good at my job. I say, I know you're good at your job, but there are variables outside your control. Would it be okay if we said a prayer before you start, you know, chiseling up the cement or whatever it is that, you know, working on the pipes or working on the roof? You know, let's let's use these opportunities as an opportunity to bring God into our lives, not just assume that it's okay without Him and only when we're in a big, difficult mess do we call on Him and then we have this sort of wailing prayer of "I hope He notices" or "Why didn't God do this for me?" Try to involve Him regularly. Mm. Dr. David Levy is my guest. He's the author of the book, Gray Matter, A Neurosurgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer. We're going to be back with David in a couple of moments time. And I want to ask him a few questions. One, what happens when a surgery isn't perhaps as successful as he hoped and he'd prayed? What was the response? How did he go through that? How did the, uh, those around understand what that meant? Um, and also, what's the best thing we can do for our brains? We've got a neurosurgeon with us. We may as well ask him, huh? Uh, that's what we'll do next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light. You're in conversation with Clayton and Dr. David Levy. He is the author of the book, Grey Matter, A Neurosurgeon Surgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer. And uh, we've heard the journey of understanding faith and mixing that with his work, and then the decisions to actually pray for his patients or offer a prayer for his patients, as we've talked about. And David, I, I want to ask you, what, what's happened when perhaps the surgery hasn't been as successful as you've hoped, or maybe the, you know, the reactions within a, a patient's body haven't gone the way that it was supposed to, and, and you've prayed beforehand? I think many would think, well, hold on, doesn't the prayer cover it all? It should make it all perfect the whole time. Good question. Uh, and that was one of my, my fears, as you recall. Uh, I, you know, will I shake someone's faith? Will it actually turn them off to spiritual things if the prayer doesn't work? But I found that the, what I'm offering someone to pray for them, I'm, I'm not offering them an incantation or a magic wand or a crystal ball. I'm actually offering to bring them into my relationship with God. So, if something doesn't go well, well, what do I do? I, I pray again. It's a relationship. It's, it's not a one-off, uh, you know, we say flare prayer, just shoot up a flare. You know, that's for people who don't know God. I, I, I know God and I'm, I'm offering to help them to use my access, my leverage to God to help them through their crisis. And so, wow, you, you've had a difficult time at surgery. You've had a reaction to the anesthesia. You know, let's let's pray again. Let's ask God to help you with whatever has not worked well. Uh, you know, that's what I started doing, not just praying before surgery, but recognized 
wow, if things went well, I wasn't thanking God after surgery. And so I said, look, when things go well, uh, I, I like to talk to God again and thank him that he answered our prayer before surgery. Let's, let's thank him, shall we? And then I'll whisper a prayer there in their ear in the recovery room. But I bring them into my relationship. That's the, that's the answer to that question. And you know, even if they're in the hospital a long time, every time I go in, if they would like, and I'm sensitive to that. Some people do get angry with God. Uh, that that's unfortunately a, a very large part of I think people's faith journey is what do we do when we prayed and something that we thought should have happened God did not answer that prayer and how do we I think it shows a level of of maturity or immaturity when we kind of get angry and storm off and say well I don't have nothing to do with a God who doesn't answer my prayer yeah kind of like the two year old throwing a tantrum believing he knows exactly how to run his life. It's not really appropriate, but it's a natural response. And I think I can help work patients through that as well. Yeah. The sense that I've got as you talk about it, um, David, every time you've talked about prayer with your patients has um, very much not the magic potion prayer. Uh, This is not the magic potion. It's not the, well, we're going to pray and therefore it's fine. You've used this phrase quite a lot, which is around inviting God to be a part of it. Um, and, and I think there's a difference in that. You've just described that really beautifully. But perhaps for each of us, as we think about those moments, especially with our health, where we, we feel like it, it should be magic potion prayer. Uh, it should be we just pray and we believe enough or whatever else it might be, and then things should get fixed. But it is just actually inviting God uh, as a part of that. Uh, quite often I, I talk about that and, and listeners to this show know that I've done a podcast with my mum in the last three months of her life of terminal cancer. She spoke with me about that. And, and we shared a lot about the differences, both people who believe in Jesus, but how we approached what we were praying in those times. And um, for me, it's very much a lot around peace. Peace is something mm-hmm. great that we can invite God in to give us some peace as we go forward. Um, are there better things to pray when we get to those big moments in life, when we perhaps just want to pray those magic potion prayers, have you discovered in your time the the better types of things to pray about? You know, I always encourage people to start with gratitude, thanksgiving, and appreciation. I think we get into what's called rumination, which is just thinking about the same old thing, a blender brain, you might want to call it, around and around, uh, And that is, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for your brain, for your sleep, for your health. So gratitude and appreciation, uh, worship uh, can often, singing can often break some of those patterns. And then looking back, I find looking in the scriptures that it's, it's very common that God wants people to remember. Remember what I've done for you. Because when we're in those moments, it's very common that we forget everything God has ever done, and we only can see the pain of the present moment. And it is so big and it's so painful that it feels like God has abandoned us. And it's not true. And we have to get that perspective, that 30,000 foot view. Uh, and and that's, that's helpful. So singing, praising, uh, reading the scriptures, using the word of God to declare uh, the, the Psalms are very helpful for that to actually read and speak the words out. Um, death and life are in the power of the tongue, it says in Proverbs uh, 18, 21. 
death and life. It's interesting, the word death comes first because I think most of us put a lot of death into the things that we say and how we talk about the doctor's report, how we talk about the terrible things happening. And we don't put a lot of life into speaking life about our health, about our relationship with God, about the future. Uh, because as, as believers in Jesus, we know that this is not the end. Mm. And we need to keep that in mind. Yeah. A, a couple of questions I, I want to ask you too, David. Uh, you know, here you are, somebody who's studied the brain a, a, a lot. You've looked into it. So we've got you. So a couple of questions about our brains as we go. One thing sparked from something you said a little while ago. You talked about the fact that as you first really started studying this, you, you realized that the things that come into our brain, we can sort of, if we don't like them, we can sort of push them aside and say, well, I'm only going to accept this. I'm not going to accept that. And it led me to quickly write down a question. Can we trust our brains? Um, can we actually trust what our brains are saying to us? Or is there some sort of a processing we need to go to, to be able to trust what we're even, you know, cognitively thinking about? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I think we all pride ourselves in being unbiased and we are all very, very biased. And so I, I think the answer to your question generally is no, you, you can't trust your brain. You will justify your behavior. You uh, have reasons that let's even say when I'm talking to somebody about Jesus, I'm talking about the gospel, which is the good news uh, that Jesus came to to die, to take away your sins so you don't have to take care of them. He's, he's done something for you. But for many people, it's actually not good news. If your social circle is not going to accept that, this good news that I'm presenting to you is actually not good news to you. So I ask people the question, you know, it, if you're very argumentative and all of a sudden you start talking about evolution and why the Bible might not be true and somebody found copies of it with you know, different books and all these smoke screens. The question is, if you believe this, is there a reason you might not want to? Is there a reason it might not be good news for you? And that does take the processing. That takes the honesty to say, yeah, you know, it's not very good news to me. Or, well, maybe I need to look more closely. It might be good news to me if I have the courage to go against what the people in my social circle or my family or my professors are talking about, if I'm willing to have the courage to be seen as simple or silly, if it's true and if it resonates with me, I want to be honest about it. But it does take a journey. It does take some courage and some, some work, I would say, to believe that, especially if you were not raised in that tradition. Yeah. Is having other people around us as we try and unbias ourselves um, and having them sort of questioning the way we look at it to try and get some of that bias and prejudice out a valuable thing? Or is that perhaps potentially um, sending us down a wrong, wrong path if we get the wrong people? I think choosing the people carefully. And the Bible is clear. We want to choose people. We know them by their fruit. So you look at their relationships. You look at how their family is going. You look at how peaceful and contented they are. And those are the people you want to say, you can speak into my life. Yeah. But your point about having people and having these discussions, it's actually very, very good for your brain. This is, this is very good brain health, is talking about spiritual topics because you, know, you can't see God. Uh, 
you can see his effects, but you can't see God. So all of a sudden we have to, it's, it's a lot more work for the brain. So as we're discussing these things and even talking about what we might or might not believe about God, very, very healthy. If you can do it without anger, Mm. a lot of people talking about God and they're very dogmatic. They're very angry. Um, You know, if you find someone whose views you don't agree with, you know, okay, it may be good to, to stretch your mind in that area, but then, you know, go to the scriptures, see what you believe or talk to someone uh, who you trust and say, is this, you know, what do you think about this viewpoint? Yeah. But it's, it's uh, spiritual conversations, I would say, are the number one health um, project for the brain. I think it's, it's incredibly healthy to have, and, and reading the scriptures and pondering the scriptures and talking with others about them. You know, that's what my wife and I, we love to read and, and talk about the scriptures with ourselves. Yeah, excellent. A final question from me. This is something that as I've sat with a number of people who've talked about the brain over the past years and have always been fascinated about it. And as I've also checked out your website, David, too, I realize there's a lot of topics around this that you have there, and that is breathing. Um, the, the concept of breathing, I never understood until, and I think I've only scratched the surface of it, but um, the, the value to our brains and to our entire being of breathing well. Could you briefly describe to us why that is and perhaps give us one thing we can be doing about breathing? Sure. Most of us are, are chest breathers. We, we breathe rapidly, we breathe shallowly, and we breathe from the chest. To even put, you know, while you're listening to this, go ahead and put a hand on your belly and try to breathe with your belly, with your abdomen coming out as you inhale and going in as you exhale, and just slowing it down a bit and start becoming more cognizant of your breathing. Uh, I've got some, an, an, an app that has breathing exercises, but, but breathing and being able to control your breathing and even slow it down is very, very helpful for your brain, also for panic attacks, for people who want more control in their life, people who are not very disciplined. It's, it's sort of the start of being able to take back some of the control when your life seems like it's getting out of control. So I think breathing is kind of the entry level to get into, in in fact, I think it's an entry level into the spiritual life in a way. Uh, Someone I'd been counseling with had a drug and alcohol problem. It took six weeks for him to take a belly breath. Mm -hmm. But when he was able to breathe from the belly, he really did feel a peace. And he felt like now he could actually hear from God. He was was open to listening to God, whereas with all of his shallow chest breathing, uh, he really wasn't. Yeah. Uh, certainly, as I've tried to learn that practice more and more, it has definitely helped me in a whole host of areas of life, including when I'm trying to ride up a hill on a bike. So, you know, that, that's, that's been the moment where I've realized I've really needed it the most. Um, David, we so appreciate your time. We wish you all the best with your, your speaking, with your sharing with this book, Grey Matter, A Neurosurgeon Discovers the Power of Prayer as well. And we're so thankful for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been good to be here. Thank you, Clayton. Dr. David Levy, he is my guest here on 89.9 The Line.